The outline says, what is so good about Jesus? Now, it is a hot, hairy morning on July the 19th, in the year of our Lord, 0064. In the year 64 AD, the imperial city of Rome is preparing to celebrate a religious festival dedicated to Caesar. And the climax of this festival is the Circus Maximus. Uh, it has a sitting capacity of 200,000 people. Uh, it is a wooden structure, really, and it's the largest wooden structure that has ever been built. Everything is going well in AD 64. And then, suddenly, a column of smoke begins to rise from underneath the surface of the northeastern corner of the stadium. And as that smoke rises, the, uh, the soon the strong winds fan the flame. And within a short space of time, the fire begins to spread, and it has spread and it has engulfed the entire stadium. And as this fire begins to gather momentum, it is now spreading to the surrounding houses. It is sweeping neighborhood after neighborhood. Historians tell us that it takes the Roman soldiers five days to bring the fire under control. And they do it by literally knocking down houses to hem the fire in. And on that fifth day, everyone breathed a huge sigh of relief. Yes, a lot of people have died, but they are just happy that the fire has stopped. But then, another fire breaks out. This time in another part of the city. And this fire now burns for two days before it is extinguished. The two fires have burned 10 of the 14, district, 14 regions of, of the city of Rome. Many people are dead. Many are homeless. And everyone is angry. Everybody wants to know. They want answers. Who has caused this fire? And the Roman historian Tacitus tells us that people are now beginning to blame the emperor. They are blaming the emperor Nero for causing the fire. Why has he done this? They say, well, he's done this to make room for a personal building project. And also, so the emperor now is very worried. The rumors get to him. People are saying this about him. We're in trouble here. And so the emperor Nero to divert attention from himself, he comes up with an idea. I'll blame the Christians, the followers of Jesus, for the fire. And I'm going to issue an edict that all followers of Jesus should be put to death. So many followers of Jesus are now arrested. Some are beheaded like the Apostle Paul. Some are put to death by wild beasts as a public spectacle. Church historians also tell us that at this time in Rome, the Apostle Peter is ministering in Rome. He is there with the support of Mark the Evangelist. The author of the gospel we are reading. As a young man, you see, Mark knew Jesus. Because the mother of Mark hosted the church in Jerusalem. And we know from Mark that Mark is a cousin of Barnabas. Mark Traveled with Paul. 
Mark is now in Rome. He has been hearing Peter's sermons about Jesus. And has started compiling this book we now call the Gospel of Mark. The book of Mark has been called a pamphlet for our times. Why? Because it is written to encourage the followers of Jesus facing persecution in Rome. As we go through this book, let us imagine young Mark, or perhaps his order now, and his mentor Peter has been crucified upside down. Mark is in a hurry to get the message out. He has no time for long speeches. He wants to encourage us to hold on to Jesus by showing us the wonder of Christ. The Gospel of Mark is fast-paced. It's moving very fast. It's less on speeches, more on what Jesus is doing. He wants to present before them the risen Christ. The book of Mark is divided in three parts. It presents Jesus in three parts. First, Mark chapter 1 to 8 introduces to us who Jesus is and his ministry in Galilee. Mark chapter 8 to 10 cover the journey of Jesus to Jerusalem to finish his work on the cross and rise from the dead. Mark 11 to 16 is Jesus in Jerusalem, his ministry there, his death, and his resurrection. That's the Gospel of Mark. Three parts to the good news of Jesus. And if you want to know what Mark is all about, the first sentence in Mark summarizes the whole book. Look at that first sentence. Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is like something new is happening. And when they would have read this, the beginning, they would have immediately thought of Genesis. This is a new start. The kingdom of God is breaking in. This book is about the good news of Jesus. The original word for gospel there is evangelion. You see, Mark was not written in English. It was written in a language we call New Testament Greek. And this word evangelion, the gospel, was a common word at the time, which meant the good news. An inscription from 9 BC celebrating Caesar Augustus says this, the birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of the gospel, of good news. That's how they thought of Caesar Augustus. They worshipped him as a little god. So the word gospel really refers to good news that calls for celebration. It is an historical event that introduces a radically new situation in the world. A game changer, a life transforming event. A change in the paradigm. Mark is borrowing this word, the gospel, to tell us that the true change in the paradigm is Jesus. The true good news is not Caesar Augustus or Emperor Nero. The good news is Jesus. That's why this book is written to us. Now, as adults, we are very skeptical when someone tells us they have good news for us. I know this for myself because when our family was in Dubai this year, a man at the airport approached me and my wife. He says, oh, welcome to Dubai, he said. He said, it's great. He said, do you know in Dubai, everybody who comes here gets a gift. I said, wow, of course. 
I immediately thought, if they have all these buildings, of course they must give gifts. I said, yeah, I have good news for you. Get a gift just for coming to Dubai. I was very skeptical about this. A part of me was skeptical first, but then I'm excited. Oh, Dubai, perhaps is a very rich place. I'm sure they give gifts to whoever comes. And then my excitement immediately turned to disappointment. Because it turns out this man was trying to sell us a costly tour of Dubai, packed us free as a gift from the India of Dubai. He was selling bad news dressed as good news. And so, as adults, we've had many of those experiences. And so when we hear that the gospel of Jesus is good news, we must ask the question, isn't it? What is so good about Jesus? It's right we ask that. What is the good news about Jesus? And I said, and as I said, all of Mark tells us the good news about Jesus. But look with me. Today we are looking at Mark chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. Look with me there. And these verses give us two reasons why Jesus is so good. Two reasons why Jesus is so good. And he's like nobody else. The first reason Mark tells us is that Jesus is so good because Jesus is God among us. Jesus is God among us. The first words of Mark here declare that Jesus has not come, listen, Jesus has not come to show us the way to God. Jesus has come because he is the way. Jesus has come as God walking through the pages of human history. Let's read verse 1 again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know, the meaning of the term there, Son of God, is actually explained in verse 2 to verse 3. Let's read those. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. If you know your Bibles, you know that this is actually a block quote. What I mean by that is Mark here has actually combined Isaiah 40 verse 3 and Malachi 3 verse 1. i just read for you Isaiah 40 verse 3 which says this. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert highway. A highway, a desert, next straight in the desert, a highway for our God. What Mark is doing here is employing a practice in his day uh, where the rabbis preferred to do what we call block quoting. And what they did was they they covered, they put all the verses together under one thing, and what they then did was single out a single author and the reason they're doing that is not the way we normally quote things. But the way the rabbis did that is that they quoted a single author because they want to draw attention that you must understand this quote here in the context of all of Isaiah. They want us to go to Isaiah and check out. They could have simply said, Mark could have simply said that as the prophet said. But no, he wants you to go to Isaiah. He wants you to check out that verse and he wants you to read all of the verse, and as we see this evening, there's a very good reason for that. Because, of course, Jesus is a servant, the suffering servant of Isaiah. And Mark is already pointing us to that, but we'll talk more of that this evening. The point I want to make to you is that if you look at verse 2 to verse 3, you'll notice three things about Jesus, what it says here. First, it says God is coming in the person. 
Isn't it? Prepare the way of the Lord. God is coming in person. Secondly, those verses tell us, those verses tell us that God will begin his work in the desert. Isaiah says that in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And finally, we see in those verses that God is to be preceded by a forerunner. John the Baptist, as we know from verse 4. He will have a peer agent who will go before God. Mark is saying all of these things have come true in Jesus. When Jesus comes to the desert in the wilderness there, to be baptized by John in verse 9, that is God walking through the desert as predicted by Isaiah the prophet. When Jesus comes, that is God walking among us. Because you see, the Bible teaches us that God is three persons in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And we see this clearly actually in Mark. If you read verse 9 to 11 at Jesus' baptism, let's just read that. We need to get appointed to Mark, so let's read that. In those days, in verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. We'll look at that next week. And the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So the Spirit of God, we see God the Spirit there descending on Christ. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. The Father is speaking. With you I'm well pleased. Jesus, God the Son. The Spirit descending on him. And of course the Father affirms his love. The three are agreeing. They are united in this mission of Christ to serve sinners. What is so good about Jesus? But what is so good about Jesus is that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who was willingly put on the rags of human flesh. Here, friends, is the creator God among us. Jesus is not Hercules. He is not half God and half man. He is not like the God of Islam. He is not all God and no man. Jesus is not even like Buddha. All man and no God. No, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Jesus is God on full display. You see, to see the face of Jesus is to see the very face of God. This is the good news of Jesus. Now all of us as we sit here this morning are asking the same question in life. All of us. Young, old, all of us ask the same question. And the question is this. What does it mean to live a fulfilled life? To have meaning, purpose, to be complete. And the list where some of you are searching for answers are endless. As I look out, I see people searching for answers in their careers. Their life revolves around the career. If only their career can take them places, everything will be happy. I see people searching for answers in good education. I see people searching for answers in family. If only we had certain family, then our life would be better. Some are searching for answers in being well-liked. The more people like them, the more they feel good. 
Some are searching for answers in doing good causes. I know many people that feel that if they do so many good causes, care for the sick, give to the poor, then somehow God will look kindly on them. Somehow they will be satisfied. And of course, many search for answers in religion, church attendance, those sorts of things. I want to tell you, friends, that in the end, none of these things can truly satisfy us. None of these things can fill that empty hole in our heart. Why? Because God has made you for himself. And your heart will always be empty until you are fulfilled by God himself. And the good news of Jesus this morning, friends, is that you don't have to search for God. No, friends, God has already come looking for us in Jesus. God has come to be with you in Christ. And the real question for you is this. Do you want him? Do you want this God who's come to you? Are you willing to surrender your life to him on his terms so that he can truly fulfill you in Jesus? You need to surrender to Jesus because Jesus is so good. Total surrender. And here is the second reason why Jesus is so good and deserves, demands your surrender. The second point and our final point is that Jesus is so good. Why? Because Jesus is our Savior King. He is our Savior King. Where do I get that? I get that from verse 1. Look at this one again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Yoshua. The English equivalent is Joshua. And it means God serves. Interesting point there. You know, when Jesus was walking around, they were not calling him Jesus. They would have called him Yoshua. And there's nothing wrong with you addressing Christ like that. Because that's his name. That's his actually... It's more, more, it's more closer than Jesus. And Yeshua means God serves. Jesus has come to serve sinners. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 says this. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 says this. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will serve his people from their sins. Jesus has come to serve sinners. All of us need to be saved by Jesus. Why? Because all of us are sinners. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When the Bible says you're a sinner, listen friends, some of you I know you find uncomfortable that I go on about this thing. But the point is that, you see, when the Bible says you are a sinner, it's not comparing you to me. It's not comparing you to the person sat next to you. When the Bible says you are a sinner, it is comparing you to the most holy God and his glorious standards. And the glory of God, friends, is who God is. Think about who God is for a minute. His beauty, his majesty, his goodness, his eternality. Everything that is wondrous about God. 
It is says you are falling short of his standard. The Bible says you don't treat God as God deserves to be treated. You know, if I lie to Abigail, it's no big deal because she's Abigail, right? We may think in my head, right? Because she's just a little one, she doesn't know what I'm talking about, right? She, she, she listens to what daddy says. But if I lie to Theresa May and she finds out, it's a big deal, isn't it? About something, and if I break the law or something like that, it's a big deal. Breaking the law of the government. But breaking the law of Abigail is not a big deal. <laughs> Friends, the jump between Abigail to Theresa May is so infinite small compared to the jump from sinning against an individual and sinning against the most holy God. Our minds can't even conceive it. You're so far from God in majesty. And every sin you do has infinite penalty attached to it. And the Bible says all of us deserve death for that. All of us stand condemned as sinners before God. Why? Because we don't treat God as God deserves to be treated. The penalty for a rebellion is eternal destruction. Paul says this in Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness do what? Suppress the very truth that they are sinners. They suppress it, says Paul. And Paul goes on to say in Romans 2 verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress from, for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. And of course, Romans 6 verse 23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see, friends? We are in a terrible predicament. We are all sinners. But the good news of Mark What is so good about Jesus? The good news of Mark is that God is saying to you in Mark 1 verse 1, I have not abandoned you. I have entered this sin-stained world. I have endured its stench to bring you home to me. I have come to take your eternal death penalty and turn it on to myself. I have come to be your Jesus. To save you from sin. That's the name Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins. What is so good about Jesus? It is that Jesus is God coming to lay down his life for you on that rugged cross. God has died on the cross to save you from sin. Think about that. An infinite penalty for an infinite, an infinite remedy for an infinite penalty. And there is more to the good news. God has come to be not only your savior, but to be your king. Where do we get this? We get this from the name Christ, don't we? Let's read that, verse 1 again. Of Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 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 The name Christ is not Jesus' surname. It is a title. 
And it means the anointed one, the chosen one by God. The Messiah who will come to lead his people. The Hebrew word for Christ is Messiah. We often say what? Russell Brand as a messianic complex. We say that about people who have dreams of serving the world, don't we? Well, Jesus doesn't have a messianic complex. Jesus is the Messiah. You see, God promised long ago that he will come to serve his people and rule over them, to rule over us, to bring his kingdom. The king promised that he will come to reign. Isaiah 9, verse 6 to 7, a passage we should never get tired of reading. We read it often at Christmas, says this. Isaiah 9, verse 6 to 7. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the what? The government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called what? Wonderful Cancer. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. And listen to this, don't forget this. The zeal of the Lord of us will do this. God is committed to establishing his kingdom. And when we come to Mark, we see that Mark is saying, these words of Isaiah, friends, have been fulfilled. God has come to reign. God has come to reign. Because that's what Jesus says when he, his first words, the first words of Jesus in Mark are these. Mark 1, verse 14 to 15. Listen to the first words of Jesus. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God, and saying what? The very first word of our Lord and Savior are these. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is saying, the king has come. Turn to me and be saved. Jesus is God among us as our Savior. That's the second good news. The first good news, Jesus is God among us. The second one, Jesus is our Savior, King. And the question for each of us this morning is very simple. All of us here, all of us, without exception, the question we ask ourselves is this. Do you really know this Jesus, our Savior, King? Have you truly surrendered your life to Jesus? You see, for many people, Christianity is just one of many ways they try to live a good life. To them, it's a culture of doing good and hoping one day God approves of us. I hope that you have listened to this two pieces of good news from Mark. You are clear that the good news of Jesus is not some religion or the philosophy of life. You see, all the philosophies and religions of life are telling us one single story. They are saying this, we must work hard to make much of life and hope for the best when we die. That's what the philosophy of this world tells us. But we see here in Jesus, friends, God is not asking you to make your way to him. He's not asking you to do that. He's not asking you to hope that one day when you die, you hope for the best. No. God has come to you. He has given himself to you to clean you up, 
by the death on the cross. To be your, to pay the penalty you deserve. And not only to save you from sin, but to give you a brand new life with God. A life full of spiritual blessings and unimaginable joy of being loved by God. That's what's being offered to you. That is why it is so good news. It is an amazing offer. And all of us here in this room must grab this with four hands. We must surrender to Jesus right now. Tell him you're a sinner. Repent of your rebellion. Receive the good news. Trust in his death on the cross for your sins. That's what this passage demands first and foremost from each one of us. Without exception, I should say. Now maybe you are trusting in Jesus. And that is great. Because this good news of Jesus interesting enough I think, is that actually it is written for Christians. Did you know that? This good news. Now, I know, some of us get bored about hearing the good news. This is a big issue. we discuss that in the evening. But here is the thing. The good news is written primarily to Christians. Because remember who Mark is writing this for. Not Nero. He's writing this to Christians under persecution by, by Nero in Rome. Many of these Christians who will be receiving the book of Mark have been living underground, fleeing from Nero, fearing for their lives. The gospel is for them. And as we sit here in this building in Bexley Heath, very comfortable, there's no Nero breathing down our neck just yet. Our world feels very different from Mark's world. We're probably even thinking, well, Pastor, if this was written to Christians under persecution, well, I don't feel very persecuted right now. Big issue there, but we'll come to that this evening. But you might say, a lot of, we'll come to a lot of things this evening. But, but you might say that. But in some way, friends, if you truly trust in Christ, your life is not quite so different from those Roman Gentile, Roman Gentile believers under persecution. Because you see, following Jesus always has a cost. If you truly surrender to Christ, it always has a cost. It always costs you somehow. Some of you have missed out on promotion at work because your faith in Jesus means you won't cut corners or compromise your morals. And that means you just miss out on promotion. You're not in the good books of the boss. Because when the boss tells you all these things at the pub, you're not interested. You're thinking, we can't do that. I know some of you live on very literal because you have decided not to be, you know, to, 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 to just go on every holiday. Actually, you have decided to give back. Give back. Notice that Jesus owns everything. You have decided to give him back what he gave you. And so you live on very little because you have given all your money away to the advancement of the gospel. You're doing that. It's costing you, yes. But you've done it because you love Christ. I know some of you are ridiculed by society because you love Jesus so much and you are out there telling others about him. And people abuse you for it. It is costing you a lot. And sometimes that can even cost us in our, in our relationship at home because we are standing up for Jesus. And not everybody will see eye to eye even in our homes. Is that you? Is following Jesus costing you a lot? 
Are you sometimes discouraged by it? I am sometimes. Mark is saying, beloved, keep going. That's why he's written this gospel. He says, you have the most wonderful Savior. You have the most wonderful good news. A God who loves you so much that he is with you now as your Savior. He's with you at home. He's with you at work. He's with you out there when you're proclaiming Christ. Are you feeling worried about your future? Mark asks us perhaps. He's saying to us, drown all your worries in the river of this good news of Jesus. It is an, a bottomless ocean of grace, Mark says. You see, friends, if you have truly surrendered, be encouraged. Be encouraged that God has really reached out to you. Your life is really in touch with God himself. And Mark is saying this, look, friends. What really matters is not our circumstances. What matters is that we have surrendered to Jesus and Jesus is now with us in our circumstances. So if you have truly turned to Jesus, let us hear the good news of Mark. Let us go on resting in Jesus, our Savior King. Let us hand over every situation in our lives to him. But don't stop there, friends. Don't stop there. Keep preaching the good news of Jesus in Mark to yourself. You know that you are prone to miss how amazing Jesus is. I know that for myself. Sometimes, the more we see something, the less we see it, right? The more we see something, the less we see it. Artists call this visual lethargy. Have you ever come across that term? Visual lethargy. I want you to think of the first time you flew over London. I remember it very well. At night, you flew over London at night. Oh, it was amazing. I looked out and said, oh, that's Big Bear. That must be Big Bear. I'm too far up. It's, it's like, it was so amazing. Incredible. I was like, wow, I live in the greatest city in the world. I said to myself, it's a blessing to be here. First time. Second time, oh, that's quite interesting. And I can see it again a bit. Yeah, it's good, good. Third time, not so interesting. Oh, at night, fourth time. Nowadays, if I fly over London at night and I'm trying to get home, I even get annoyed if I look outside and we're just circling. You know, that happens quite a lot because of the, the crowded flight paths. If you're flying over London, you're just circling around sometimes. This is not a pitch for Ifro building the third runner, by the way. It's just making the point that when you're flying over London, you're not as impressed as you were first time around. It even sometimes annoys us. The point is that things that look so beautiful and attractive become ordinary over time. It is a fact of life. We stop seeing the beauty and wonder we once saw. Now, I could talk about this about husbands, wives, and your importance to see beauty afresh. But let's remind you that's, that's what life is. And what we cannot appreciate, listen to this, friends. What you cannot appreciate, you cannot celebrate. Do you know that? What you cannot appreciate, you cannot celebrate. And that's the danger of followers of Jesus first. We may have become used to the gospel. I look at so many of us here in this church, and I can definitely say we have gospel liturgy. 
We have become so used to the gospel, hearing that Jesus died for our sin. What should drive us to our knees in wonder no longer does that. When I speak to a person who is not a believer and I tell them about Jesus, the tears flowing down their eyes doesn't come to us who allegedly have read the Bible from cover to cover. What is that? Gospel liturgy. You have become used to the gospel. The truth of Jesus should fill you with encouragement and excitement as a follower of Jesus. Be honest to yourself. It's not doing that at the moment. It's not. I see it. And friends, can I just say, if it is not doing that, you cannot have any gospel fruit. If you are not, listen, if you are not excited about Jesus, you can't preach him. You can't serve with joy. If these two words we read here, these two, Jesus is God among us, Jesus is our Savior King, is not the soundtrack to your life, then you'll be completely fruitless. And if that fruitlessness becomes your perpetual condition, then you'll be like the church we read about on Saturday morning at Sardis in Revelation. You have a reputation of being alive. You are once allegedly baptized. You are once, you became a church member. That's your reputation, isn't it? You attend on Sunday. The world sees it. You have a reputation in the world of being alive, yet you are still dead. Because there's no fruit there. Have you lost your salvation? No. It's just that you may not have been truly converted. So this morning, make a fresh commitment to meditate on this earth-shattering gospel. Jesus is God among us as our Savior King. And can I encourage you that the way you fan the flame, your love, your gospel affection, is to be intentional about it. Preach the good news of Jesus to yourself as we go through Mark. And yes, let me give a pitch for the service. And yes, that means perhaps this very day, making that commitment, I'm going to listen to every single sermon, 80 sermons that the Lord has prepared for me in Mark, and I want to be fired up for the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll make a commitment to come in the morning to hear Jesus proclaim. I'll make a commitment to come this evening, every evening, to hear Jesus proclaim. And pray earnestly that as we go through Mark, the good news of Jesus will begin to be formed in your life and in the life of this church so that truly we can say we know Christ. We can say, what is so good news about Jesus? Well, because Jesus is God among us. Jesus is our Savior King. Amen.